What inspires business leaders to take their startups to the next level? What helped their dreams to become reality? This is Meet the Makers, a city podcast series produced by EI Studios, the award-winning custom division of Economist Impact. My name is Sam Shaw, a journalist and presenter specializing in business, finance, and technology. In this four-part series, I'll be speaking to founders and CEOs of global SMEs to hear their unique stories of how they built and grew their businesses. Our second episode of Meet the Makers is all about scaling up. So today we'll be delving into managing those growing pains, making tough decisions, and the impact on staff, culture, and strategy. Joining me today is Adam Schwab, co-founder and CEO of Luxury Escapes. Just over a decade since its launch, Luxury Escapes now employs more than 500 team members across four continents and is approaching 1 billion Australian dollars in turnover. Adam is a former corporate lawyer, a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, author, and podcast host, but he's managed to find some time to join us today. Adam, hello. How are you today? Good morning, Sam. Great to be here. I want to jump back to those early days. You used to be a corporate lawyer. You then launched a number of businesses before setting up Luxury Escapes in 2010. How did that idea develop initially? It's interesting. We, we kind of fell into what became Luxury Escapes. We essentially saw a business called Groupon in the States and started a business that was essentially an Australian version of Groupon. So the Groupon style businesses sold all sorts of things from local experiences, be it restaurants, uh, products, and also travel. And we realized relatively quickly that the best part of that business was travel. So it wasn't until 2017 that we really became a travel-focused business. We have travel and, and experiences as well, but it was a slow burn. It was a really a long process of, of finding what business had the best product market fit. It certainly wasn't overnight. It was really a five or six-year process. There's knowing that you've got an idea that's simply viable, and then there's knowing that something is truly scalable on a global basis. What does it feel like when that penny drops? We were bootstrapped pretty much the entire way, and we only raised money really recently for the first time. This is 12 years after we started, and that was mostly secondary, very little primary, so really many respects. And but for COVID, we wouldn't have, almost certainly wouldn't have done that raise. So uh, in many respects, we're very different to a lot of court startups uh, these days, it's very rare that a business hits our scale of almost a billion dollars in turnover, Australian that is, without raising money. So we've, we've always had a slightly different approach to business. So I think you speak to any bootstrapped founder, they have a generally a very different take on growing and scaling than a, than a venture-backed founder. We're generally a bit more conservative because when you're spending, when you're investing, reinvesting profits rather than reinvesting venture-backed monies in a what is a high-risk environment. So even now when we're we don't consider ourselves a success. We consider ourselves a constant work in progress. Uh, and we think there's, there's a lot we can do. We definitely don't think we've, we've made it. And that's in a way every startup, I think more so if you're a bootstrap business, you're really never satisfied. I can imagine it must be both difficult, but also kind of inspire you to keep you going. How did that funding model affect your growth strategy? I'm thinking specifically about how those early plans looked versus where you are today and how those two compare. Absolutely. That's a really good question. And what it means is you grow more slowly. So if you're backed by a rocket internet of Germany, who will look at a five-year, what's called LTV, a lifetime value. So you may acquire a customer or purchase a customer by usually digital channels. And if you're venture-backed, you might take a two, three, four, five-year lifetime value approach. If you're 
bootstrap, you're going to look for a profit on first purchase. So we generally won't acquire a customer for more than the margin we make off that customer. So using a real life example, let's say we sell a holiday and our margin's $1,000, we wouldn't pay $2,000 to acquire that customer. I've made up random numbers which aren't true, but uh, venture-backed businesses would in many cases because they take a long five-year view. They say, we won't be profitable for the first three or four or five years. We'll get profitable eventually on repeat purchase and lack of churn. But when you bootstrap, you don't have that luxury because if you, if you do, you go broke pretty quick because you just run out of money. That's one, I would say probably a good thing about being bootstrapped, especially if you look at the last year and, the, and, the, and how investors look at, at businesses now. I think that probably the downside of being bootstrapped is you just don't spend enough on really good people early. Uh, and partly because you don't have the money for it and partly because the attitude you have is we can do it. We don't want to spend money on people. We'll do it all ourselves. So you're not doing five different jobs yourself. So I did customer service for five years. I did content for three years. Uh, you do a lot of stuff that you shouldn't be doing as, as a founder. And, and that essentially inhibits growth because you don't hire the best people because you don't want to. And it's really only been the last three or four years that we've really upped the ante in terms of hiring. We may have got lucky. So we've certainly, over the journey, in the first five, six years, we did get some really good people. And that was more good luck than good management. And if you look at the last three or four years, it's been, we've intentionally tried to go out and hire the best people we can. And more recently, really upped how much we're willing to, to pay for people. But we, we generally are, have recognized the importance of good people. And you probably don't recognize that as much as, as a bootstrap startup in the early days. That's a really good point. And the decision to go out and look for new people, was that about the physical capacity of you and your partners? Was it that you got to the point in your growth, it was obvious that you needed more people? Or was that always the plan and you just hadn't found the right people? Bit of A, bit of A, bit of C. Uh, don't know, in terms of C, you don't know what you don't know. So I've got an incredible team, but there's, I'm sure there's always better people out there. Uh, but you don't know how good someone can be till you bring them in. So in the, in the, we've essentially got myself and Jeremy as co-founders and Josh and Mark, who sort of came in as slightly later co-founders. Uh, and, and we had a lot of incredible early stage team members. My wife was our first CFO who's gone on to, to work with some other incredible startup. We had some incredible people in the early days, don't get me wrong, but they came with really big equity positions and, and who were super invested in the business from, from that perspective. But we didn't tend to bring in external non shareholders in at that level till probably year five, year six or whatever it is. And we, you change your view as you can afford to, and as you see. So it's a bit of a combination. Uh, it, every employee takes a risk when they join a new business. So if you're joining a, a, a super early stage startup, that's a big risk. You, you need a lot of upside, and that's usually in the form of equity, a lot of upside to match that. We're in the really fortunate point now where we're profitable, we're almost hitting a billion dollars in sales. So we've, we've got enough scale that I think someone who looks to work for us isn't scared that we're not going to be able to pay them. Uh, and at the same time, there's a significant upside. We think we can still 10x, 20x, 50x this business. So we're at that really nice point where someone can join our business, have plenty of upside, but minimal downside. Taking that bootstrap position from the beginning, how has that affected the relationship with your banking partners and the kind of input you got from them compared to what you actually needed from them? So we use banking partners in a couple of ways. We've, we've never had debt as a business. So you think of banking partners, you instinctively think of, third-party debt, essentially, or bank debt, which we've never had. And banks generally, if you look at our balance sheet, because of the whole, the whole bootstrap nature of the business, it's certainly not as strong as as a business that owns factories, because we don't own really much by way of hard assets. But our banking relationships are a bit different to a normal business, and that our main banking relationship is really partly in terms of merchant and partly in terms of transaction banking. And for us, we've got a lot of overseas-based clients or partners in terms of hotels, tour operators, cruise, etc. We, we have to pay a lot of overseas-based businesses. So 
the complexity in our banking is really in foreign exchange, managing treasury, that sort of stuff, and less so in probably the more traditional parts of finance, which is really bank debt, because we don't actually have any. Nice position to be in. Do you have any advice or any tips for managing cash flow during that scaling up process? Cash flow question is a great question for so many startups. We're a bit unusual. So we're effectively a negative working capital business because our customers pay us in advance, often on average six months in advance. So we hold a big float of cash like an insurance company does. So cash flow for us has actually never been an issue. Even during COVID, we we had 100 million bucks in the bank or 105 and it didn't really change much because our customers trusted us that they wanted to go on a luxury escape when COVID ended and, and that let us effectively keep the cash. So I've been involved in a number of startups and it's not usually like that. So managing cash is probably the most important, that and jobs are generating revenue, the two most important facets of a startup. And understanding, especially if you can't bootstrap and most people can't, is how do you manage cash flow between different capital raisings? So I'd always tell a founder who I'm working with is, how do I get to a series A? What, what, what will investors need to see in terms of unit economics, in terms of uh, revenue, in terms of profitability, potentially, probably not profitability, but in terms of those those key aspects, what do I need to get to? And then what do I need to do to get to that? So how many salespeople need to, need to hire? How much do I need to spend on marketing? How do I need to manage other costs that are enabling costs? So there's a lot of stuff that goes into running it, effectively, I'd call it a marketplace or, or a SaaS business that is inevitably going to be not cash flow positive. We were really lucky. We didn't have to worry about that stuff. We had to worry about other stuff, but we never had, we were lucky enough never to have that cash flow problem that almost every other business has to, especially if you've got a, a marketplace trying to conquer the valley of death, where you're just trying to get that product market fit and you haven't got it yet. That's a really hard place to be. So you've got to be, you'll be lucky with SEO, you've got to be lucky with PR, you've got to, or have lots of money to be able to acquire customers. So can you tell me about the toughest challenge that you faced and indeed overcame during that scaling up process? people's definitely a big one. I won't, I won't labor that point because we talked about it already, but not hiring incredible, probably more expensive talent in the very early, early days and, and giving equity at that point is probably one mistake we made. Uh, business is about making mistakes. Business, uh, any great business person is making thousands of decisions per day and you can't expect to get them all right. You've got to get something wrong. If you, as I said to my son when we're skiing, if you're not falling over, you're not trying hard enough. If we're not falling over as a business occasionally, and it's a classic one-way, two-way door that Jeff Bezos made famous. If it's a two-way door, if you can reverse a decision pretty easily, which in fairness, almost all decisions are, it's pretty rare you don't get a two-way door. But if it's a two-way door, make the call, get it wrong, try it, learn from it. Uh, if it's a one-way door, well, there aren't many one-way doors, but if it's a one-way door, it's closing a product line. If it's uh, betting the farm on something, which is really rare, then obviously take that decision really seriously. But if anything, what kills businesses in transience is, is not making decisions and not being willing to get stuff wrong. So we want to embrace mistakes. We want to embrace failure. We want to embrace learning from failing fast. The worst thing you can do is making a huge error that kills the business. But the second worst thing you can do is just not trying stuff and being flat-footed and just being overtaken by other businesses that will will trust, that will evolve, because that will meet the customer need quicker. You want to be, We want people to be aggressive, take a chance and not be, be afraid to make a mistake. We want, what we don't want to see is mistakes of omission. We want to see mistakes of commission. Sure, absolutely. And I imagine that you attract a certain type of person. Is there a mindset that people come to you with that's actually what you're looking for? Absolutely. I think part of the hiring process is it's like dating someone, really. You've got to make sure someone's compatible. We know as a business there are certain types of personalities that will excel in our business and certain types that won't. If you've worked at a startup, that's often great for what we want. So we want a certain type of personality 
someone who's not afraid to work super hard and and try new things. Uh, if someone wants lots of structure and rigidity, probably not the best business, but that's that's fine. Everybody's different and we want to try and hire someone who we think will have the maximum chance of success working for us. Certainly whenever I interview someone or talk to someone before a role, try and be as honest as possible about that. We don't want to try and mislead someone to thinking it's something they're not and then have them leave their role to come to us and be disappointed. So we want to try and make sure that all our team members who start with us trust us that we're going to do the right thing by them and then they'll do the right thing by us. Just thinking, I'm, I'm really interested in your experience as an online travel business during the pandemic while you were scaling at pace. What was that like? And to what extent were you forced to compromise on any of your original plans? It's actually interesting. Clearly, the pandemic wasn't great for the travel sector as a whole, but our scaling had probably slowed slightly as the pandemic approached, funnily enough. So I'd stepped out of the business and took a sort of a consulting role with the business. I'd, I'd been running the business for almost 10 years at that point. And then the pandemic came and it kind of rejuvenated me to an extent. So I came back into the business and we really rebuilt the business in many ways. The pandemic, as bad as it was from a short-term EBITDA perspective, has transformed our business. And we went from being essentially what was a travel deals business, but we've now become a technology-driven travel business that is a very different business. We've got multiple marketplaces within our business now. We used to have 100 products on sale pre-COVID at one time. Now we've got probably 15,000. It's a very, very different business. Our tech team's quadrupled from pre-COVID to now. We've completely changed how the business looks, feels, and operates. We've grown significantly in that time, and we think we have a lot more growth in us. So if you look at where we are pre-COVID, we think we could have taken the business to call it a billion, billion and a half over the journey. We think we can have a $10 billion business now. There are some incredible travel operators around the world from Airbnb to Booking.com, et cetera. We're not going to become a Booking.com. We think we can take or we can create and grow the market because what we do is different to those businesses. We inspire travel. We create new journeys that didn't otherwise exist, whereas the bookings and the Airbnbs tend to farm existing demand. So we're a different product to what they are, but we're really trying to solve customer pain points in travel. If you think of the travel, everybody loves, most people love to travel. But when you think about it, there's a lot of problems with travel, from delayed flights to the hassle of checking in to issues checking out to not liking hotels or to whatever. There's lots of things that can go wrong in travel to itineraries that don't change as you go. So one of the products we recently released is we call Trip Planner, which is a dynamic itinerary builder where our customers can, can plan their trip online with friends and family, sharing the trip, adding it digitally. So you're adding hotels. So you can use a trip we've built for you or build your own. So you can take one of our great... Uh, food trips through Italy where there's three or four different hotels, some great restaurants, some great experiences. You can take it all. You can take you can take one or two parts of it. You can change hotels. And then not only can you build a great itinerary, in, which is which is great fun because that's really part of the process that isn't that much fun for a lot of, for a lot of people. You can have a great time building your trip. Almost more importantly is whilst you're on the trip, you can constantly add to your trip. So we're building functionality that when you land in, in Rome, we'll suggest here's some great restaurants to try. When you get to Booglia, you can, or here's a great uh, cooking class you can try. So we'll, we'll, we'll be able to effectively dynamically change and improve people's holidays while they're on it using heaps of first-party data that we have and using using the information we have on our customers. So how do we use data to improve travel? And nobody's really doing that. So we've invested very heavily in what we think will be the best travel user experience online in the world, and we're constantly evolving. So it's a very different business to what it was three years ago. It's been a really exciting three years. It's been a hard three years in many ways. And really COVID only for us probably properly ended in January. So we've, we've had this incredible experience. We've been able to grow as a business and really revolutionize the business in the past 
24 months. And in a way, COVID was a, was a great blessing as much as it was a curse. Sure, that's really interesting. Are there any markets that you've not yet penetrated or anywhere in the world that you'd like to expand into in terms of the partners that you'd like to work with? We have a bit of work to do on the product front, but really where we see a lot of our growth is really on the customer front. We've got a pretty strong brand in, in Australia, but far smaller in, in the UK and the US. So the US has been an incredible growth market for us. We're, we're super optimistic. We think our product is, we think we've got the best travel product in the world in terms of the actual product we sell, as well as the user experience. So we think we've got all the ingredients to grow this to a, to a significant business. So take it from almost a billion to 10 billion in turnover in five years, which is where we, where we want to be. Uh, it's certainly a challenge, but it's not a challenge that can't be done. We've seen Booking.com in in 20 years grow to $100 billion plus turnover, Airbnb the same. There's been some great businesses that have achieved that uh, and travel businesses inherently scale globally. So we know if we can get anything like the penetration we have in Australia will be significantly bigger than a $10 billion business. Uh, one in every two people that goes to the Maldives goes through us in a, from Australia. So we have some pretty good penetration in certain routes. And now the challenge is how do we, how do we show people in the UK, how do we show people in the US what we have, what we can do? Uh, and grow this business significantly. That sounds great. Just before we conclude, however, what advice do you wish you'd had when you set off on this journey? Or what would you tell your younger self if you could go back? Uh, take chances and hire really good people are probably the two big ones. And don't don't be afraid. Uh, it's a, it's, it's easy to just not try something. It's easy to, to not ask that person out on a date because you don't want to be saying no. But if you don't ask, you, you don't have a chance of, of a yes. So I think, and Jeremy, my, my co-founder, one thing he was incredible at is just saying, just go for it. And part of the reason we've been able to achieve the success we have been is our sort of different personality sets as me being a bit more of the operator and Jeremy being that strategic risk-taking thinker. And he's not super hands-on in the business and hasn't been for a long time, but they're still involved effectively day-to-day at a strategic level and constantly pushing us to try new things and think of new things. And it's that yin and yang that, that has worked really well. Um, yeah, ultimately, we've been super lucky. So there isn't too much we change because we've ended up in a, in a much better. We never would have dreamed of having a business this big. I think when we think back to 2012 and we were talking about selling a stake in the business, we dreamed of getting a $20 million valuation. Uh, so we never would have dreamed of achieving what we've achieved. We've been incredibly lucky along the way. It's 99% luck, good timing, and probably 1% is is probably execution. But we've had an incredible, we've had a rails run. So we're super grateful for the good fortune we've had. And, and hopefully we can continue to, to grow the business. And really created just the best customer experience. And if we can do that and create a great employee experience, create a great customer experience, and then ultimately we think we'll create lots of value at the end of the day. Well, congratulations on what you've achieved so far. I think it's going to be really exciting to see where the business goes next. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Sam. It's been a pleasure. That's all we've got time for. Please join us for the third episode of Meet the Makers, Growing Internationally, where I'll be joined by the CEO and founder of SmartFit, Edgard Corona. Thank you for listening. All opinions expressed by the participants in the Meet the Makers podcast series are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of City Commercial Bank.